Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Freedom Caucus podcast. We are honored to have you on board with us today and really excited with our very special guest today. We have another conservative warrior, Rachel Bovard. We are honored to have her with us today. Uh, Many of you know her. She is an author. You've, uh, in fact, we're going to be talking about a brand new book uh, that she and Senator DeMint have co-authored together. We're going to be talking about that here in just a few moments. But uh, Rachel, before going to CPI, as we know it around here, the Conservative Partnership Institute, which we'll again talk about that here in a moment, she also worked uh, a lot in the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate. And uh, Rachel, we are honored to have you here with us. Thank you for your leadership in so many regards. You're one of the leading voices here in Washington, and we're glad to have you on the Freedom Caucus podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, listen, we've got a lot to talk about. I want to get to the book, but first of all, I think there's probably a lot of our listeners who are not familiar with CPI, uh, the Conservative Partnership Institute. Why don't we begin a little bit by talking about that? What is CPI? What is the mission? And uh, overall, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah, so the Conservative Partnership was started about two and a half years ago, almost three now, uh, by myself, Senator Jim DeMint, Ed Corrigan, and Wesley Denton. And we really are trying to take a pragmatic focus on Capitol Hill for conservatives. Our mission is to uh, unite, serve, and support conservatives, particularly on Capitol Hill, because we've recognized that there's a lot of institutions in Washington that give conservatives the best policy. You can go a million different places to get it. Conservatives are very strong there. But there's no one really helping them be strategic and tactical about getting those policy ideas across the finish line. Uh, So we do a lot of strategic advice for members of Congress. We work closely with the administration on staffing because we know another area for conservatives is personnel is policy. Uh, You're never going to get the right outcomes if you don't have the right staff. And then lastly, uh, what I do there is a lot of teaching and instruction. So um, Senate procedure, House procedure, the real sort of rote uh, levers of power. Because again, you can have the best policies, but if you don't know the right levers to pull to get them across the finish line, you're never going to be successful. So those are the three areas that we focus on at CPI. Um, It's been very fun for us. We've started with the three of us, and now we're up to, I think, 11. So we've tripled in size. (laughs) Yeah, and it's really amazing. You know, I think one of the... Uh, one of the problems in Washington, D.C., both individually and with organizations, is everyone is kind of an island unto themselves. And you find that here in the House of Representatives. I'm sure you find it in the Senate as well, that every office is working to accomplish their own agenda, what they want to do. The same uh, mentality exists in many organizations around here. They're all looking out for themselves. And CPI has come along to try to bring these like-minded individuals and organizations together so that we can better work together. I mean, and we are certainly much stronger together as we are individually. Yeah, and that's reflected, you know, we called it the conservative partnership for a reason. You know, there's so much strength in the movement. And to your point, you know, when we're all sort of doing our own thing, we're siloed and it's not intentional, right? Everyone just has different priorities. But when there is a focus on getting us together, getting everybody in the same room, sort of rowing in the same direction, that makes a stronger movement. And so that is ultimately our end goal is to strengthen the movement from a strategic standpoint, from a skills standpoint, and from a unity standpoint as well. Okay, well, let's transition from there. You and Senator DeMint obviously uh, have a, a great relationship in terms of working together to advance conservative ideas and to uh, bring people together around those ideas, as you say, to get them across the finish line. You've just written the, the book together, Conservative, Knowing What to Keep. Great title. 
tell me a little bit about the book. What drove you to write it, and uh, what what basically is the purpose of it? So Senator Demit and I um, approached this project with the feeling that you know everybody's trying to redefine conservatism right now. Uh, you know the left tells us that we're a bunch of racists and bigots. <laughs> you know, right. and the right is not totally sure where they're supposed to be rooted either. And so this was really our attempt to go back to the foundational philosophies of conservatism, really articulated by Russell Kirk in The Conservative Mind. And in that book, he says to, to he exhorts people, he says, every generation, it's their responsibility to save conservatism for the next generation. And so that was really sort of, we humbly undertook that exhortation to really update conservatism and tell people what it means in this modern moment. And you know, I really got to give some credit to Senator DeMint. He doesn't get enough credit for this, but he has mentored so many young conservative women, myself included. And it was really his idea. He came to me with this project, and I just assumed he wanted me to help him write it like, you know, staff do, right, behind the scenes. But he said, no, you know, I want your ideas. I want you on the byline. I want two generations really approaching this, this topic. So that was a really fun uh, experience for me uh, Jim and his wife, Debbie, have been really strong mentors to me. So, And there's a host of young conservative women. He was doing it long before it was cool. Now it's like a cool thing <laughs> to wow. promote women. But Senator DeMint uh, has a, a host of, of young conservative warriors out there, uh, myself included. So I, I love the concept of having to pass conservative ideas from one generation to the next. There's no question that conservative principles are massively under attack, as you said, from so many different fronts were labeled a host of, of labels are tagged upon us that are inaccurate. They are intended for the sole purpose of uh, discrediting not only the message but the individual who believes in those conservative principles. So how how is this book and what you're trying to accomplish here going to address those type of issues and, and open the door for conservative principles to continue marching forward to future generations. What I think is really important and what we tried to do from my perspective in this book is, is get away from this idea that you know conservatism is just this reflexive set of policy proposals or restrictions or ideologies because that's what the left gives us and that's you know what we want to reject. Conservatism at its heart is really a philosophy. It's a philosophy of gratefulness. It's a worldview. It's a way of looking at the world and saying, hey, you know, we've been around for a long time. We've tried this you know, a lot of things. You know, we know what works and what doesn't. We want to get rid of what doesn't work, but to the, to the point of the title, we want to keep what does. And we want to be grateful for that accumulated wisdom and look at each policy proposal through that perspective going forward. And it really, I think, would surprise people because we have ch entire chapters about how conservatism is really about keeping our differences, for instance, right? Everybody tags conservatives as, you know, you just want this homogenous society where, you know, everybody does what you say. Well, no, true conservatism allows differences to flourish. Uh, this is reflected in the marketplace, for instance, right? Everybody loves socialism because it's the great equalizer. But what they forget is that it's the great equalizer at the very lowest level. Right. Uh, conservatism says, hey, everybody has different gifts and abilities and views. The best society is one in which we all respect those and allow them to flourish. And so we really try to get at the, at the real philosophy uh, of conservatism in that regard. And I think people would be surprised. And I think that's that's a great distinction because it's really the left that has the one-shoe-fits-all type mentality, be it ideas or even in politics itself. You see it up here. The left rarely breaks ranks. They all just kind of run in a pack together. They all do. And, and when those principles become normative on a national basis through policy, 
it becomes the same outcome for individual lives. Everybody's supposed to have the same health care and the same type job and the same type pay and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you agree with that? Yeah. And that's, you know, I think we really try to get at that, right? Because I think socialism sounds good because it is supposed to be the great equalizer. But to your point, we all have different gifts. We all have different abilities. We all have different desires and needs. And what may be good for someone in, you know, D.C. is not going to be good for someone in Idaho or Georgia, right? And and really reflecting those differences is a, is a fundamentally conservative principle, being thoughtful about it, being prudent um, in, in approaching those questions. Um, we have an entire chapter about socialism, which I didn't think we were going to have to write, to be honest, but, uh, but here we are. And, you know, we really dig into those questions and, and demonstrate how socialism, yeah, you want to be equal, great, but you're going to have to do it at the very lowest level. That's, that's terrific. All right. Now, one of the, one of the things that I think, uh, President Trump obviously has brought to the table, uh, is this concept that outsiders, as opposed to insiders politically, uh, the swamp. Uh, these outsiders, like President Trump, have just been incredible at not only articulating but embracing conservative principles. Uh, is there an advantage? Is there something that we're seeing a movement that uh, that you are seeing and identifying and talking about in this book of outsiders? involvement versus the insiders. <laughs> it really goes to this idea, I think, of this, you know, elitism versus the rest of us. Because when you talk to Democrats, and I have a lot of friends across the aisle, a lot of them really believe that people cannot make the best decisions for themselves, mm. that it is a, incumbent upon the government to make that decision for them. And that's something that conservatives fundamentally reject, uh, you know, not just from, you know, I think a practical perspective, but from a human dignity perspective. There's nothing that strips someone of their dignity faster than telling them what to do or removing their responsibility uh, for making any decisions because people want that. People want to be able to make their own choices and and have autonomy and and see their choices fulfilled in life. The government strips you of that ability when it starts to come in uh, and finger wag at you and tell you exactly what to do. And I think people have respected uh, that authenticity in President Trump, where he's he has come into D.C. as an outsider, as you point out, and, and he's rejected this idea that he's going to do things the way the swamp tells him to. And I think, honestly, impeachment has almost been the result of that, because you're seeing the swamp fight back and say, actually, every other guy has listened to us. And, and when we've said this is how it's done, they bend the knee. And Donald Trump hasn't. And I think people outside of D.C., intuitively that they engage with that, much more so than I think we do in D.C. Well, let's let's dive into that just a little bit further, because I think you put your finger on an extremely important point. A lot of this whole circus that we're watching right now with the impeachment can probably be taken back to that that you just brought up. It is the insiders, the swamp, the deep state, the whatever you want to call it, who are frustrated, aggravated with an outsider coming in, mixing it up, uh, tearing it down, exposing it for what it is, be it in the media or in politics right here or in various agencies and departments. So, uh, I mean, just take that a little bit deeper, the issue that we're dealing here with impeachment versus the outsider, Donald Trump, uh, and, and people like him who are coming to D.C., yeah, there's, there's two reflections I've, I've had just watching all of this unfold. And the first is that I think from a broad perspective, the Trump era has really unmasked 
DC for what it is. <laughs> and it is... And it's ugly. And it is ugly. And it's a lot of overt self-dealing and it's backslapping and it's, it, it, you know, literal smoke-filled rooms to some extent. And I think you're seeing that on display. Uh, and I think that hopefully will change some of our politics going forward. I think the American people at least have appreciated that. But the second thing, you know, in watching this, these impeachment proceedings and reading the transcripts and, and watching these hearings, I have just been struck repeatedly by the arrogance that these unelected officials have, the contempt that they have, not just for the president, but for members of Congress, for, for people who are elected to, to represent the American people. These bureaucrats want absolutely nothing to do with them. And I have just been repeatedly blown away, even in the transcripts. There was a, a section in Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman's uh, closed-door testimony where his attorney went after members of Congress. First of all, didn't even recognize uh, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, said, uh, confused her with a staffer and was incredibly rude to her. But second, you know, in an exchange with Congressman Zeldin, told him, and again, this is a an attorney, not even the witness, addressing a member of Congress, I don't want your Fox News talking points. I know where this is going. You need to stop. I, as a former staffer, I was just completely blown away by the disrespect, contempt, and 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 just awful rudeness that these uh, witnesses and attorneys were treating elected members of Congress. And that, I think, reflects the attitude in some parts of the bureaucracy, and I find that frightening. I do, too. And, and literally, I saw, and I can't remember who made the, the comment, but somewhere in one of these hearings uh, or afterwards, the comment was made that anyone who is supporting President Trump has a mental problem. Uh, because, it, I mean, you're this is coming yet again from this elite group who don't like his foreign policy, who don't like him, who from the day he was inaugurated said they were going to impeach him because he is the outsider coming in, uh, draining the swamp, so to speak. And, and their attitude of arrogance is such that anyone that is backing him is unworthy to have an elected office or whatever. It's just and, unbelievable. And they'll try to take the government down over it. That is what I think is so stunning. It's one thing to have this view. It's another thing to be so arrogant that you then act on it. And that's, I think, what we're seeing now. Okay, let's let's shift really quickly. I know we're, we're winding down here, but I want to spend our, our closing moments here uh, talking about um, policy, which is largely being overlooked right here in the midst of the uh, impeachment debacle that we're watching. You are an expert on policy on multiple fronts. I'd like to go specifically into the big tech area. Uh, uh, you are the, the co-founder of Internet Accountability Project, the Internet Accountability Project. Uh, what is that real quickly and what's uh, the, your hope that will come from it? So we started IAP a couple of months ago, and it's a group of conservatives that are concerned about big tech, um, the growing power big tech has over our lives, the amount of data that big tech collects, and sort of the market distorting impact they have on a very innovative space. And so we really want to bring attention to that through you know, congressional testimony, media. We just want the right to be talking about it, because I think for a long time, there's been a reflexive nature among conservatives to say, well, private companies can do what they want, and they should be free to do it. And that's generally right. Uh, but I think, and, and at IAP, we believe that our laws haven't really kept pace and our public discourse hasn't kept pace with the huge amount of control that these companies have that you no longer opt in or opt out. 
if you may not be on Facebook, Facebook has a file on you. I can tell you that much. Google is sharing your health data uh, and tracking you across the internet. Uh, and Amazon owns half the internet. And so these laws that govern these entities were written in 1996, uh, before a lot of them even existed. And so our goal is to say it might be worth having a conversation because at least if we don't decide to do anything about policy, this is now becoming a civil society question uh, about how we live together, how we communicate across uh, differences on these platforms that are controlled by algorithms. And so that's what we really want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, and these are huge issues, not only from the privacy perspective where you're talking about where they have all this information about us that we've not voluntarily, at least not knowingly voluntarily have surrendered that information but even the, uh, the, the speech rights, we, we had Lila Rose on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, with live action films and her pro-life position and how Facebook has censored them. Well, where else do you go if some of these so-called platforms, really they're, they're beyond the platform in my opinion, but where else do you go if your primary method of outreach is through the internet and then these big platforms decide to censor you and not allow you to have a voice, it becomes a First Amendment issue very quickly. No, it really does. And and I think, you know, for a long time, our on the right, our response has been, well, if you don't like it, build your own Facebook. And I think it's just <laughs> not, said than done. It's not operative anymore, right? So I think our, our discourse needs to reflect that updated uh, mode of conversation now. <laughs> We've been talking with Rachel Bovard. Uh, she's recently written a book with Senator Jim DeMint, Conservative, Knowing What to Keep, Rachel's been an honor to have you on the podcast with us today. How can people get the book? Um, they can find it on Amazon, Conservative, Knowing What to Keep, or they can check it out on our website, conservativepartnership.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, folks, that's all the time we have for this episode. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And if you enjoyed this program, like I know you did, we'd encourage you to take time to rate, subscribe, and review this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And always, for more information about the Freedom Caucus, you can follow us at facebook.com slash Freedom Caucus and on Twitter at Freedom Caucus. Until next time, hope you have a fantastic remainder of your day. This is Jody Heiss signing off. We'll see you next time.